Welcome to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast with Simo Suahemo. This show is your backstage pass to discussions with world-class influencers in the field of health, nutrition, and high performance. We bring you the selected tips and insights that you can use to upgrade your life and become unstoppable. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Superhero Podcast. I am your host, Simo Suahema, and today we have a very, very exciting guest on the show, Dr. Kate Shanahan. She is the author of the book Deep Nutrition and the director of Los Angeles Lakers Nutritional Program. Welcome to the show, Kate. Hi, thank you so much for having me on your show. Super exciting to have you have you on the show. We met at uh, Paleo FX at uh, last year's edition in 2016. And uh, you had a very, very exciting workshop and, uh, and a talk at, the, at Paleo FX. Yeah. So yeah, I was talking about uh, uh, how to interpret your cholesterol levels, you know, because we kind of are uh, patients who are following a high carb diet, I'm sorry, a low carb diet, and who are including more animal fats in their diet are often going to see their total cholesterol numbers going up. And, and that can be a major source of stress and conflict between them, their doctor and their family members who are worried about what they're doing with their diet. So uh, I wanted to give them, uh, and it was ended up being like a two hour workshop on just <laughs> understanding how to interpret the levels and what it all means and what the best test is and, and so on. So I actually have some, a lot of that information on the website, drkate.com. And of course, um, you know, we're going to cut, we cover it in our book that's being released this week or actually last week already now time flies january 3rd so um yeah so that there's a ton of information in there because it's just so confusing to be a it's it's actually confusing the whole nutrition world is a frustrating place as it has been for the past 50 years since this whole idea that saturated fat was bad for us kind of took over the science and um that actually is a big topic of, of, uh, what's the big reason I had to write a book because, um, it, it just changed everything. Once I, once I came across that concept that, you know what, wait a second, we never had any information showing saturated fat from animal products or, you know, natural food was bad for us. We never had that information. It was never, that was never the problem that just totally blew my mind and changed everything about the way I practiced medicine. It's, it's definitely a, a field that's that's currently one of the one of the biggest controversies, I would say, when it comes to nutritional science and understanding the function of macronutrients and understanding what the perfect human diet should be. But I would I would just be super fascinated to hear how you first uh, got interested in this field. Was it uh, because of your because of the patients you were seeing? Was it because of the research you were delving into or? Or how did you how did you get the spark? Where where did the, where did you start from? Well, it, it, it's all of the above because um, when I before I went to medical school, I really felt like I wanted to get to the underlying cause of, of you know medical problems, right? I I didn't know how the medical system worked because my dad was a doctor and I never had to go to another doctor. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so um, so I I just had this naive idea that. Oh, I'm going to go to medical school, uh, medical school and learn the underlying causes of all these diseases. Well, obviously that didn't work out. And uh, I mean, because that's, you know, doctors do not learn that we learn how to categorize disease. We learn how to, what you know, so that we can figure out what diagnosis a person has and what drug matches that it's, it's a, you know, we have to use a lot of cognitive uh, processes to get to come to that conclusion. And it's a very fun and interesting process as a physician and can be rewarding, but there's major limitations. And by the time I was practicing in Hawaii, I had been out of training for three, four years. And I had kind of become a little bit jaded because I realized that I, I wasn't really helping people. And I, I was just adding new prescriptions. They'd have hypertension. I just gave them a pill. They'd still end up getting heart attacks and strokes. You know, was these pills that they were taking was supposed to prevent those things. And it wasn't doing that much. And as they decades would go by, their medication list would get longer. And, you know, so I had that question mark over, over my head from, you know, what is the underlying cause? And then I started getting more question marks over my head. And if I was like a Snoopy cartoon, I would have been a Snoopy <laughs> with multiple question marks ho hovering over my head all day long. 
And, and then I started noticing that a weird pattern in my own patients where the older folks were actually healthier than their own children and grandchildren. And that was super fascinating. And I started also noticing that these older folks weren't just random people. They were really into food. They were really into their traditional uh, traditional recipes. And so much so that they would like if they were going to have a party they would say, okay, let's buy a goat and fatten this goat. And, you know, they planned months ahead. And it, it was really a whole like um, side <laughs> side <laughs> uh, job, you could almost say, but they loved it. It was just, it was the way it was done. And Hawaii was, uh, Hawaii is actually the healthiest state in the United States in terms of longevity. Uh, the long, The lifespan there is two years longer than the second runner-up state, which is Minnesota. Two and years. That's, that's, two that's years. major. That's that's definitely a major a major thing there, I think. Because is it the average, like, what's the average life expectancy nowadays? Is it like 74, 73 for males, a couple of years more for, for females? or uh, For females in Hawaii, it's like 82, 83. Um, 82, 83, it, wow. Yeah, and so then the other states, they're like, their life expectancy ranges are like within weeks of each other. So to be two years is a major leap. And I, um, I, I believe that it has a lot to do with the fact that they did not have electricity on the island until 1970 <laughs> something. And most people were almost completely food self-sufficient or if not most, many, many more than any other state in the country. I see. And of course it's tropical and there's the ocean right there. So they really have everything that they need to eat the way that they ate in whatever country they came from, whether it was the Philippines or Southern China or Japan. And, you know, it was very heavily populated with people from similar climates. So it was not at all a leap to just live in Hawaii the way they had been for hundreds of years, thousands maybe, uh, in whatever country they came from. So this was very steeped in tradition. And um, so I was observing those things and had all these question marks over my head. And then I get injured and I can't walk and nobody knows what's wrong with me. And my husband says, Maybe that sugar, that pile of sugar that you pour into your uh, caramel sauce for your coffee isn't so good for you. I think you should start looking into nutrition and learn a little bit more about that. And, uh, I, you know, I really didn't want to do that, but he, because, uh, you know, it was his idea. And <laughs> <laughs> also, so you don't have no other choice, essentially, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was stuck on the couch because I couldn't do the exercise. I was, uh, you know, a, a kind of a world-class uh, long-distance athlete. And I had suddenly an hour or two every day free time because I wasn't able to exercise. So I was able to do a lot of reading and I came across the work of uh, physicians at the turn of the previous century where it was almost unknown at that point in time that people living in these more distant outposts and using their very politically incorrect term, primitive cultures hmm, right. were resistant to the general list of diseases that doctors were treating for the people who are living more in like this civilized, uh, you know, not being self-sufficient. In other words, but getting food, processed food from the local stores, that's major, made the major part of their clientele. And the people who were indigenous to the area following their indigenous traditions didn't get cancer, didn't get tuberculosis, didn't even have things like gallstones or appendicitis. So it was kind of widely understood at that point in time among physicians who had that experience in their clinical um, <clears throat> uh, work space that, yeah, there was something that that people were doing that was making them healthy. And there were two schools of thought. It was like, oh, well, you know, in the Himalayas, maybe it's the pure air or maybe it's the mineral water or something like that. And then there were other people who were saying, um, yeah, but what about this, uh, this new line of foods that a lot of people who are sick are eating the processed flours and the sugars and the, uh, canned foods. And so there were kind of those two schools of thought. And the one that made more sense to me was that that a combination, actually, that it was introducing the processed food. And then as that obviously would replace the, the traditions. And so then I realized that, OK, yeah, these traditional cultures are doing a lot of there's a lot of wisdom here. 
And uh, there's there was a lot involved. Like I just mentioned, the people living around me, they wanted to have a party. They'd buy a baby goat and raise it and feed it the way they wanted and then use every single part of it, the legs, all the, they'd render sure. the back. Their age-old so, traditions of, of uh, yeah. acquiring and preparing their food and and uh, and uh, using it as as a whole as a whole food or looking at an animal also also from a from a very uh, holistic perspective as a source of nutrition and and all kinds of different nutrients. Yeah, way beyond what I learned in my home ec course where I was learning how to make cookies, <laughs> which I kind of already you know did anyway. But um, so so there was a lot of wisdom here, and I was just fascinated with that and uh, wanted to codify it in a way that would be something that would be meaningful for me to understand, you know, okay, well, what is it about my patients that's making them, what are they doing? What should I be doing? What do people used to do everywhere? So my husband and I um, looked at thousands of recipes from old cookbooks and uh, we watched TV. <laughs> this was a fun part of the research. <laughs> we we watched travel shows where uh, folks like Anthony Bourdain and Andrew Zimmern go to all over the world, and they they have a lot of they do a you know kind of the favorite part of the show was always when they would go to like the the old mamacita or the real traditional uh, <laughs> hole in the sure. wall kind of restaurant and 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 eat the you know the the classically prepared stuff for that area. And so that's how we came across um, the concept that there a was a lot of stuff that we were no longer doing, and b um, we wanted to look for common elements, and that that common looking for common elements became the centerpiece of our book, Deep Nutrition. The four elements we call them the four pillars of uh, world cuisine, which really found, formed the foundation of a common diet that everyone around the world had been following until very recently. That's a very exciting path, and also sounds like a like a very delicious path to go go down. Even though you were you were in a way solving your own 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 problem, you were looking at a at a very kind of a long timeline of human nutrition and and what what humans have actually subsisted and thrived from thrived on in a very different conditions around the world. Yeah, the most challenging thing for me was to get my head wrapped around the idea that what I had learned about saturated fat in medical school and most of the stuff I'd learned about nutrition in medical school was 100% wrong because, you know, I spent a lot of money, a lot of time. I had grown up believing that uh, saturated fat was bad and that if it didn't have saturated fat, it was a healthy fat. And so after I got my head wrapped around that, I couldn't practice medicine the same way I had um, because I was not able to just sit there and take it when people were saying, you know, <laughs> oh, I uh, I eat a healthy diet. I, you know, I watch my fat. I don't eat animal fat. I don't use butter. And uh, especially in the context of Hawaii, where I knew these people had access and the ability to make these traditional diets, I just could not stand by and let that happen. So I had to start telling them, you know, look, go back to doing what you were doing. And they kind of look at me cross-eyed. And that's where I was like, okay, I got to, I got to like write a book. I got to do something. I got to get other doctors on board. And I've been struggling to do that like ever since. So that was like 15 years ago, because this is a made, this is the big hang up. The idea, the one idea that has destroyed our health more than any other was the advice, the idea that saturated fat was bad for us. It was pretty much literally the equivalent of setting off an atomic bomb in our DNA. Right. Because what it did was it it took us away from all these traditions. You cannot practice <laughs> a real culinary tradition. You can't make like even just Thanksgiving dinner if you're freaking out about the the fat under the chicken skin and all the salt and everything like that. So so that has 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 to stop in order for us to be healthy. That's what I'm working on. Like, so I want to let people know what they can do. But at the same time, I also want to, we have to kind of crack through this physician belief that saturated fat is bad. And so that's a big target, big, also a big focus of what we talk about in the book, Deep Nutrition, because we really want people to be confident that they are doing the right thing, even though their doctor's telling them the opposite and I also do want the occasional doctor to pick up this big book and, and read it and and maybe think about things, you know, start continue to think about things differently. I'm very excited about the uh, the uh, key pillars that you talk about and and uh, many of the uh, problems, the issues that are that seem to be causing this this epidemic of of a uh, of a uh, type two diabetes and and uh, issues like that, like two thirds 
of, of adult Americans being either pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic. Uh, we're, we're going to talk about your book, book in, a, in a while, but first I want to ask about how did you end up working with some of the top athletes in the world and, and efficiently uh, or, or essentially looking at how to uh, build up an efficient human being, human body for superior physical performance in the amazing sport that we call uh, call uh, basketball in the Los Angeles Lakers. How did you become the director of, of the, uh, the uh, nutritional pro- program of the Lakers? My husband reached out to them and said we'd written a book that had uh, some information that they might find useful, and particularly st- some strategies that they weren't taking advantage of. And we sent them the book and they called us and said, tell me more. Um, and there, you know, the, when I say they, I mean, there are two trainers at, at the facility. One is Gary Vitti, who was the head athletic trainer who just retired last season. And the other one is Tim DeFrancesco. And they were both on the same page about kind of a common sense approach to nutrition. And if something had worked in the past and uh, d- didn't have any problems with it, had a good track record of success, it made a lot of sense to continue that. And um, so that's basically what we did was we said, here's what people used to do in the past. So they they liked that kind of analytical approach and the logical regimented approach to um, analyzing what people did in the past, right? So, I mean, the paleo movement is great, but they go way back in time, 20,000 years, and it's all an imaginary diet. We don't know what people really did. And even if we did know exactly what they did, we, there's no way we could reproduce it. Those plants and animals are extinct. Right. It's pretty hard to uh, actually <laughs> actually find out now, right? It's, it's kind of too late to find out what they what they really ate. Right. But so our point was that, that, you know, we don't have to guess because the cookbooks are laying around still in print from uh, from that from 50, 60, 100 years ago, even. And there's a ton of information in there. So we just broke that down. And, th- and that's how we came to the conclusions. And uh, their favorite of the four pillars that we identified as the strategies that were common to all traditional cooking around the entire world are their favorite one is something we call meat on the bone and meat on the bone just means uh, you're going to not going to have the skinless boneless chicken breast. And if you have a, a giant animal like a cow, you're going to save those bones and make a beef bone stock out of them. And you're going to make chicken soup using maybe chicken, uh, not just the bones, but if you also have chicken feet, that's even, even better. Um, and what that does for athletes is that, you know, athletes do a lot to strengthen their muscle. Um, they, they do a lot of protein, even supplemental protein, uh, but they don't generally in this country do anything at all to strengthen the tissue that holds the muscle to the bone, like their tendons right. or the tissue that holds their joints together, like their, um, so getting that collagen in, into support that or. Yes. So, uh, so it's collagen as well as, uh, other molecules that you don't get just from bone. You have to have the cartilage, the shiny stuff at the end of the joints or the, or the skin material. So they have long names, glycosaminoglycans and proteoglycans and stuff like this. So they're a unique molecule. Um, collagen is pure protein, but these, uh, glycosaminoglycans are mixtures of amino acids and sugars, and they actually act as signaling molecules like almost like a growth hormone for the cells in your joints, in your skin, um, that lay down collagen of all kinds. And that also produce joint material. I see. So, so the glyco- to get this, to get this clear. So the glycosaminoglycans are available in the, in the joints and in the, in the, uh, uh, connective, uh, tissue when you eat, for example, a whole chicken or, or or uh, or a meat off the bone. Am I correct? Or what are what are yes. some good sources of uh, these compounds? So if it's a chicken, it's um all that white, wiggly, shiny stuff that's uh, to the tendons and the cartilage and the joints and even the skin is going to be a fantastic source of it. And if it's a beef bone, then you want to get not just the bone, but you also want to get that white, shiny cartilage at the end of the bone. So what we did when we were in Hawaii, we just asked the ladies who were the butchers, <laughs> the lady butchers, who were, they were just like two blocks from my office. It was incredible. <laughs> and uh, they just went to the back and sawed off a knee joint of a cow. And it had like the meniscus and everything in there and the ligaments. And um, it was like $2 that they charged us. <laughs> Don't expect, I, we have not been able to find that kind of a deal. <laughs> it's tough. Uh, it must be tough. <laughs> 
Yeah. But so you, we have some recipes on our website about how to make chicken stock and beef stock the way that Luke does it, because there's lots of recipes floating out there and I've had lots of them and they're good, but Luke's is like indescribably delicious because he really uh, pays a lot of attention to intensifying the flavor. And then you get um, just these delicious demi-glace sauces that you put, you pour them over a steak or something with like a little bit of sauteed onions or mushrooms. And it is just, it is better than anything I've had dining out. It's just oh, sounds amazing. really good. So essentially the, uh, <laughs> the delicious reduction there that, that really, really packs a punch in flavor. Yes, exactly. And the athletes, uh, the the players love that stuff. You know, they actually Sandra makes it into a lot of her, a lot of soups and even a lot of vegetable soups because it's a great way to get people who don't love vegetables to eat more vegetables. So she'll just use that as a base and then puree some steamed vegetables and uh, some other magic that she does. And and then you know we have the the players who come in like after their one year of high school, uh, eighteen nineteen. They don't know the difference between celery and broccoli. And she's got them eating curries and <laughs> all kinds of vegetables. They don't know what it is. They don't really know. Even sometimes they don't even know that we have a program if they haven't been paying attention. <laughs> uh, they just know her food is fantastic. And those guys who do know, they say that oh, it's really helped their joints. So they, they totally love that stuff. It sounds amazing. So essentially what you did was you came in, you you brought in your all your knowledge about the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, key cornerstones of these performance enhancing diets, and you implemented that. The first thing that I, or, or the first time rather, that I that I found out about that that there were actually these types of nutritional changes or programs going on was from Ken Berger's uh, series of articles. I think in in 2013, 2014. Uh, yeah, where... he was with CBS. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I, I believe. In one of his stories, uh, uh, Tim DeFrancesco, the uh, one of the coaches that you just mentioned, earned the name Grass Fed. Can you can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, they call him Grass Fed Tim because we really emphasize the source of the chicken and the beef and the pork and everything that we're getting because it makes such a difference. You know, the animal is getting its natural food, it's getting sunlight, it's not being pumped with antibiotics and fed grains, which are not its natural diet. And so there's many nutritional benefits. For example, it's going to have more, the fat is going to have more vitamin K2, conjugated linoleic acid and omega-3. And the muscle meat itself is going to be more loaded with um, the reasons that we go for uh that we go for uh, muscle meat, like so. When it's red meat, there's going to be more uh, B vitamin, more I'm sorry, more iron. Um, the uh, the chicken is going to have uh, more B vitamins, so it's just going to make the meal more nutritious. It is a uh, harder to cook. I mean, you can't cook it the same way, I should say. And um, so if you're just like for the first time buying a free range chicken, you're going to notice that it has a lot more. The skin is thicker. It has more, uh, the tendons are more robust and there's more like disruption in the meat so that you can't just like bite. Uh, I, I've gone to some events where they go through the trouble of getting these fantastically sourced, well-raised chickens, and then they just grill them and it doesn't work <laughs> because it's chewy and you can't eat all of it. So you have to at least not, you know, I don't know. It's not something that you can just leap into doing. You ha you have to, um, stew it or slow, um, slow roasted it or, or phrase it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the way that you get the most benefit of the, of the flavor, right? You'll enjoy it because I, I, like I said, I've been to these events and people don't finish their chicken <laughs> <laughs> because it's too chewy, you know, and it just gets thrown out, which is a horrible waste. And then obviously they're not getting nutrition if they're not eating it. Obviously not. So when you're <laughs> looking at the changes that you made into the uh, Lakers, Lakers, uh, uh, players diet, uh, what are what, what would be the the top three ideas for for our superhero podcast listeners to implement from a world class professional team? Because because much of what we're what we're talking about here is 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 uh it's it's very simple. It's very much back to basics. Understanding the uh, the bioavailability of the food and the quality of the food and and as you just said, the preparation. So what would be like the top three? takeaways for for someone listening to this podcast who would want to increase their athletic performance with with their diet so i'd say they'd be um you absolutely need to learn what polyunsaturated fats are and vegetable oils 
because polyunsaturated fats are the kind of fat in vegetable oil. That's number one. And you, cause you need to get them out of your diet, the, the vegetable oils. And, um, we should talk about that. So people know what I'm talking about. And number two is moderating your carbohydrate intake because, uh, most folks and most athletes in particular are encouraged to eat way too much carb. And then the third is to add back in healthy, uh, fats and, you know, the, the rest of the four pillars of the human diet that we discuss in our book. But um, I, I'd like to take a, a little bit and and talk about these vegetable oils because, you know, a lot of people go low carb and they feel like they've done their job uh, in terms of optimizing their diet. And in many cases, they that's really moved them in the right direction uh, in terms of getting off of the vegetable oils, because if you go low carb, you're not having deep fried French fries you're, and you're not having snack chips. But um, if you're not making if you're not paying attention to the oils, you're still going to be getting them from your salad dressing from um, anytime you go out to eat. 99.9% of the restaurants out there are now serving people at these fancy restaurants. I'm not talking about your fast food joints. I'm talking about fancy high-end restaurants. Uh, somewhere around 30% of your calories, not including your dessert, is going to come from these vegetable oils. So it's a serious, serious incursion into your health because what these things are, are ox something called oxidative stress in a bottle. And oxidative stress uh, damages the polyunsaturated fatty acids, but it's like liquid age. There's two things that kill us. Oxidative stress is the number one. And the second one is glycation. So glycation comes from carbohydrate. You cut back on your carbs, you're going to reduce that. But oxidative stress comes primarily now from these vegetable oils. We are eating a 2000 times more soy oil than we were in 1909. And this is something that I have to just get on this bandwagon about because, you know, we've got people talking about sugar and going low carb and all that. And that is very important, but no one's talking about this. And it is uh, something that is more harmful than sugar. Okay. And, and that's quite a statement that because everyone's statement, saying, you know, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite a statement. <laughs> because sugar, we can, you know, we have sugar comes when we eat food anyway, you know, there's high carb and low carb foods, but it's all sugar when all is said and done. And we have hormones to help, uh, keep the sugar, the amount of sugar in our bloodstream in check. And they work for a number of decades anyway, until the amount of sugar, the overload of sugar wears out these hormonal systems. But that usually doesn't happen unless you're really trying hard as a child. Um, it doesn't happen. Uh, so, it, you know, maybe people start getting the effects when they're around 30, 40, 50, 60, depending on, you know, their genetics and stuff. Right. But everyone, everyone immediately is harmed by these vegetable oils. They are no good. They are nothing but toxic. They are literally genotoxic. They are the reason that we have these epidemics of disease. And in fact, when we talk about diabetes, everyone thinks carbs, 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 because carbs make you release insulin. But these, there was just a fascinating and very important study that I do mention on my blog that was done by a very smart woman in UC Davis who noticed, huh, if we're eating so much more soy oil, I wonder what this stuff does. <laughs> so she she created a, a study where she compared um, the soy oil to coconut oil and then to the rat control diet and compared to the rat control diet, or maybe it was mice. Anyway, the um, they the same amount of calories uh, from the control diet versus the soy oil diet, same amount, the rats became obese and they were normal weight. Wow. And so it was a 30%, 30% difference in the, in the fat and the weight gain, which is incredible. And so this, they had actually fewer carbs, these mice. And of course we're talking about mice and we are sure. humans, but you know, I mean, it's, these things have a universal effect, um, on, at the cellular and atomic level, whether it's a mouse or a, a rabbit or an NBA player. So that is something to consider when we're thinking about it. She, she determined that they, they were gaining weight and they were becoming insulin resistant and they were developing fatty liver. So everything that we've been blaming purely on sugar and carb intake, uh, these things did without any carbs in the diet. So the two of them together are just a perfect experiment that we've, uh, in this country, unfortunately, been recruited into what happens when you feed people the cheapest possible food composed of mostly starch, starchy, sugary foods with these unnatural oils 
these polyunsaturated vegetable oils like soy oil and canola oil. Those are the two biggest ones. Um, and so anybody who tells you that we still need more research to get to the root cause of the, the um, obesity epidemic or the diabetes epidemic or even things like autism just has not kept themselves informed because everybody who studies it comes to the same conclusion. It's the modern diet. So, uh, you know, back to what, where we started our conversation at the turn of the last century, when physicians were dividing themselves into two camps as to whether there was something miraculous in the Himalayan salt that was helping people live longer, or whether it was simply something that people were replacing by eating these refined flours. And at that time, vegetable oils and mostly were uh, consumed in the form of shortenings instead of lard because they were much, much cheaper. Sure. So we, we've been, we've had the evidence for a hundred years uh, or more. And doctors just are not yet paying attention because we don't believe it because of this conviction that we've had that saturated fat is the problem. But we never had any evidence that saturated fat was the problem. And in fact, at the time when saturated fat was blamed for heart attacks, you know, I'm you may be familiar with the idea that back in the 1960s, there was a man named Ansel Keys who said, uh, the cause of heart attacks is saturated fat. Well, at that point in time, 1950 to 1960, this was way before the obesity epidemics and the diabetes epidemics. But you want to take a guess at what the actual number one cause of heart attacks was at that time? That's a, that's a, that's a very good question. <laughs> I, I don't think I, I don't, well, I'll please, tell you. please, please go ahead and tell me. I think this is fascinating. It's not food. It was cigarette smoking. Wow. And if you look at the curves of cigarette smoking rates and heart attack death rates, they go up and down in perfect sync. And, um, it, you know, the, the carb consumption, uh, doesn't match the vegetable oil consumption, increases, but we've got all these other diseases coming along. Uh, we've actually reduced the fatalities, you know, the per population fatalities from heart attacks. So as we've, because so much, because we've quit smoking and, and if we had simply not believed this man named Ansel Keys and, and started looking for what, uh, the real cause of heart attacks was, we eventually would have figured out that it was smoking. And in the, here's the real kicker about this. Do you know why cigarette smoking causes heart attacks? You, you probably do. Yes. Because you've read this yes. stuff. Yes. In one word. Tell me one word. Two words. Two words. Uh, detrimental <laughs> effects on, on the uh, cardiovascular system and our, and our veins. Y yes. And where that comes from is something called oxidative stress. Those are the two words yeah, I was looking yes, for. Exactly. So, so oxidative stress, right? You're smoking. You're inhaling smoke. And so vegetable oils are oxidative stress in a bottle. And so if we get these out of our diets, people with severe arteriosclerosis, even histories of heart attacks or strokes are going to reduce their risk of heart attack and stroke and going to even potentially clear their arteries because we know arteries that are very caked up with arteriosclerosis can, given a motivated person, improve. And potentially, I believe that they can clear. It's just that um, we uh, haven't actually looked. <laughs> you know, we've looked, we've used drugs and using drugs, you can, uh, the statin drugs, you can get a tiny bit of improvement, but you're not addressing the problem with drugs. You're still, if you're still eating the vegetable oils and still getting the uh, sugars in your diet that damage the lipoproteins and lead to arteriosclerosis, as we talk about in chapter seven of deep nutrition then you're still going to be building up arteriosclerosis, even on the statins. And that's why that the heart attack rate of people on statins is still, still somewhere around 70%. They, they get repeat heart attacks, 70, 80, even 90% while they're on a statin. So do you, get so do you reckon that without, without the, uh, uh, or, or looking at uh, people taking statins right now, uh, are they actually actually uh, kind of disguising the core issue here, or are they still deriving some effect uh, from the statins, some beneficial effects, or is this something that's actually kind of a, a double-edged sword in the sense that they're actually disguising much of the harm that they're doing uh, with these vegetable oils? Yeah, that's a very good question. So the answer is that they are some folks, and I uh, the, the some folks are benefiting. And I'll tell you who it's the people who are unwilling to change their diet, who've already had a heart attack and who smoke. Right. Those folks are definitely so benefiting. those in the, in the, uh, so in the uh, top, 
to deciles like 20, 30% of, of the, uh, of the, uh, the high risk, uh, people because of their lifestyle factors. The highest factors. risk people out yeah. there. Yes. But what are they benefiting from? Well, they're benefiting from reducing the risk of another heart attack or stroke. They are still putting themselves at risk of dying from the complications of taking the drug. And that happens. I've, I've actually tragically seen that happen. I, I had a patient uh, die from uh, an accident and they weren't sure if it was suicide or what, because uh, the drugs affect the brain. Uh, actually, no, I've had two patients die. One was, uh, you know, looked a lot like an accident. One looked a lot like a suicide. And then um, I've had uh, another patient who died from complications of an infection. And these are things that are known complications or side effects, I should say, of the statin, of taking a wow. statin. Those are powerful because, examples. Yeah, because... Mm-hmm. And I've had many, many other patients where they they just they felt like their brain wasn't working right, and I I told them that they didn't need to take it, and you know they they some of them felt immediately better, but some of them have had damage done before they get to the point where they notice it. So it takes longer to recover, but it, it it's a serious problem. And um, like I said, I cannot practice medicine the way I want to because of vegetable oil because you have to get that out of your diet. You And when you do, then you really won't be deriving a lot of benefit from these statins. But, you know, it's still the, such a mythology around the saturated fat and that these statins are just, they sh- they're so safe, they should be in the water supply. But I, I, another thing that I talk about on the website, my website, drk.com, is how doctors get convinced uh, to believe in these drugs is primarily through statistics. Through statistics. It's because, not the lobbying. It's, yeah. it's not the uh, not the influence of of a of a big pharma, but the statistics. Correct. Right. It's not because some you know somebody with a nice lunch walks into our office and said, "Hey, hey, this drug is great." That person isn't just doing that. They're they're showing these statistical studies that they've probably paid for. But the statistics are so complicated; it's beyond the scope of the doctor's area of expertise. So we're really just taking their word for it, and we don't need to. And that's kind of like my message to physicians is that we should go back to the, what we went to school for a minimum of seven years for, which is the basic physiology of what happens when you block somebody's HMG-CoA reductase enzyme, which is what these statins do. You're not just reducing every single cell in the body's ability to produce a necessary nutrient called cholesterol. You're also changing isoprenoids. You're, you're changing a lot of other stuff, which changes how the immune system works, the way the cells hold themselves together. And if we think for ourselves about that, we will do much more for our patients than if we just trust the statisticians because it's so easy for statisticians to trick doctors. And the number one trick do you want to, I can tell you the number one trick, how, how these uh, studies are done that fool doctors. I would doctors. love to hear this. The That's number what... one trick. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're talking about fooling doctors that a drug is safe, what they do is they have what's called a run in period and they recruit a large number of people. And they, during this run in period, they don't really have to report what's happening in the paper that eventually gets published. And what it looks like happens in a lot of cases is they give everybody the drug and anyone who has side effects, which they screen for, they kick out of the study. So they kick out about a third of the people in, on the average study for statins. They kick out about a third of the people who are entered into the study. So, so it, what they essentially end up doing is cherry picking the, the population of, on which they're performing the study on. Yes. And in that sense, the fact that, so what they call it is a randomized placebo controlled trial. Well, it's a lie because it wasn't randomized. They already performed a part of the study that they call the run-in period that that wasn't randomized. They knew what they were doing. They knew who got what, and they could kick people out at that point in time. And that trick has fooled doctors into believing that statin drugs are way safer than they really are because they're eliminating a a third of the people who have like these immediate side effects uh, that that show up in the first 12 weeks. So you could even call that the kind of a black hat strategy of pre-selecting uh, pre-selecting the data or, or pre-selecting the, uh, the individuals for these studies in order to, to get better results. Exactly. Yes. They, they screen for people who can tolerate the drug and then they go ahead and randomize that, that population of everybody who can, who at least does not have immediately noticeable side effects on their cognition, on their muscle, 
on their digestive system and so on and so on. So let's take this uh, step towards action. Most people, I think, are, are more or less aware of the, of the, uh, uh, the risks and the hazards of hy- hydrogenated oils. And, and you, you also talk about this in your book. Uh, but not many people people know that there are there are many oils used in these commercial kitchens, as you said, in 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 even the high end kitchens, and and indeed in in people's people's pantries and people's people's homes. So so what you're you're and in Whole in, Foods, Whole Foods, for, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, yeah, for, yeah. All, all that prepared yeah, food in 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 all the all the stores, even 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 the ones that we're we're looking to to find a better better sources of food, better source of nutrition. And uh, and uh, canola oil, corn oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil obviously belong to these, as you as you write in the book. Uh, is there is there something else in the in the uh, oil realm, or or is there is there is there some kind of a rule of thumb here, or or just basically eliminating these vegetable oils altogether will will do ninety percent of the benefit in this in this uh, kind of step. Yeah. So in this step, just eliminating them, you know, altogether is, is, is the safest bet. Now it's somewhat, it gets, it's a situation where, you know, you can get a little bit too worried about it. So if it's in part of a spice mix, it's not going to be in significant quantity, but beyond that, I'd say you want to avoid it. So, um, you know, just always pick up whatever package you have. If there's an ingredient list on there, screen it for vegetable oils. And there's six major ones that make it into packaged foods. So you listed a few of them. So I'll just list them from scratch here. Canola, corn, cotton, seed, soy, sunflower, safflower. So that's the complete list to avoid these oils and replace them with with better options that we're we're, we're going to talk about in, in a moment. That's on packaged goods. Now, when you go to a restaurant, there's two more that you have to watch out for. Those are rice bran oil and grapeseed okay. oil. And these are mainly restaurants. Uh, can, you, can you expand a bit on that? Correct. I don't know why they're, they've made their way into restaurants and not the processed food, but um, they're, they've made their way there for the same reason that soy and canola did, because it's neutral flavored, high smoke point, all the things that make a busy chef make their lives a little bit easier so that they can crank that food out as fast as possible. But if you go to uh, what I tell everybody to do when it, so first of all, I said, pick up every package, turn it around, look for those six uh, oils. And we list them out. I list them on my website. They're in the book. They're those six, you should memorize them because you'll find them in places you don't expect like dried blueberries and dried fruits. And (laughs) there's some very surprising places (laughs) to find these oils for sure. Yes. And it, on those things, they are a significant quantity of the calories because fat is so high in calories compared to something like a blueberry. But um, and then so when you go to a restaurant, what I recommend is, you know, if you can call ahead, see if they can make anything without any of those oils. And if they can, that means that they're a good restaurant and you should go there again. And the other thing that I like to do is if you call them up and they make uh, their gravies or their bone stocks from scratch, then that's a good restaurant too. So those two things are signs of really good restaurants. And those are the chefs you want to support because they're doing it hard. It's harder to do that, especially if they say, oh, well, yeah, we hardly use these vegetable oils in anything. We're, we're snobs about it. We use butter and uh, we use real olive oil and stuff like this uh, because it is significantly harder to use those oils. And that means that the chef is getting is paying attention to everything else in the same, giving everything else the same kind of care. That's what I found. So that is a, that is a treasure of a chef and you want to spread the word about what a great restaurant. So that's definitely a good indication of a, of a place you want to take your family to eat out. And so looking on on the healthy side, so what are the types of oils that people should include in their diet for, for increased uh, longevity, health benefits, and indeed sports performance? I suppose this was also a major part of the, of the Lakers program that you've been implementing, including these healthy oils and fats, healthy fats into the diets of the athletes. Yes, absolutely. So a big part is just when we have the any kind of a meat, we try to use that natural fat that's there. So skinless, boneless is, is not something we have very often. Uh, we try to include the bones uh, and the skin and, and the, for the fat under the skin, it adds flavor and it helps it cook more in a more healthy way. And so, <clears throat> so naturally fatty foods, including sausage and bacon and nuts and all that sort of stuff. But then when it comes to like determining what is the, the added fat or oil, a rule of thumb is really anything that has a flavor that you know what it, it what it tastes like. So like everyone knows what coconut oils taste like. It tastes like coconuts and olive oil tastes sort of like olives. Peanut tastes kind of like peanuts. Sesame 
so on. So those are the those are the oils that you want to use. And of course, butter as well. And and when it comes to these animal fats, it's much better for you if that animal has been on a pasture sure. outside. So looking at grass. The grass-fed sources of of uh, quality quality meats and also of quality dairy products. Hugely important. Yeah. And in and what I do is I even go beyond just grass fed and I personally get um unpasteurized and unhomogenized um milk because I like the taste and heat and that processing destroys nutrition. But I don't recommend just jumping into that if you don't already do dairy. Uh you want to make sure that your gut flora are are lined up for um being on the friendly side there to help you, um, if, you know, cause any raw food can be contaminated with bad bacteria. This goes for sushi and lettuce and <laughs> everything. But if you change your diet drastically from not having dairy to having dairy, particularly milk, you don't have a lot of the good flora yet in there. So I recommend, I have a protocol in the book, but basically it involves beefing up the, the probiotics with yogurt and um, drinking some like regular milk first. I'm a big fan of, uh, of, a of a raw milk and raw cheese myself. I've been, uh, mm. <laughs> I'm pretty much hooked on that stuff ever since I, I got acquainted, uh, with, with these delicacies, which luckily for me was, was, uh, quite early in life. These have, these really been, really been a familiar product <laughs> for me. And, and, uh, even more so during my time in Switzerland, where I, I used to have access to this this dairy right next to the place where I was living in, in, in St. Gallen, uh, they would have the, uh, the, uh, cows that were essentially enjoying all the, all the herbs, uh, year round, uh, outside. And, and you could definitely taste it in the milk as well. So that's, that's definitely, definitely something for our, our, uh, milk and, and our raw product connoisseurs to try out there who are, who are listening to this mm-hmm. podcast. Speaking of milk, what's your take on mm-hmm. milk consumption in general? Who should, enjoy dairy products who should consume dairy products anybody who likes milk or any dairy product so there's this mythology out there that because because some people as they get older they lose the enzyme to digest one of the milk sugars called lactose uh, the enzyme is called the lactase enzyme there's this mythology that that means that we're not supposed to have any milk at, you know after a certain age that it could even be unhealthy but that uh, the lactase gene um is downregulated in uh, those folks who typically, as they became adults, would have fermented milk. So the fermentation process removes the lactose. So it doesn't, that gene does not in any way indicate that dairy is a good or bad food. It just indicates that those people who, who do not have lactose enzymes as they get older, uh, that their culture in general, consumed milk products in that fermented state. So whether it's yogurt or cheeses, hard cheese, soft cheese, whatever, the lactose content is re- is eliminated in some cases, but drastically reduced by the bacteria that do the fermentation right. there. There's definitely huge variation on on uh, geographically and population-wise in, in this fact as well, the, uh, the ability to break down lactose. I, I suppose like 80% or 80 or 90% of the East Asian population has at least some degree of an issue with with breaking down breaking down this milk sugar. Am I correct? Uh, well, yeah. So it depends what study you look at, but it's higher in the warmer countries because the fermentation process would go faster, right? So in it's the northern European folks that generally can tolerate dairy and and have a much lower incidence of lactose intolerance because the it was colder a lot of the year and the milk would stay fresh and so that it didn't naturally ferment and so they were consuming fresh milk with the lactose in it more throughout their entire lives it's really as simple as geography um and just the effect of the heat on on the um what happens to the milk makes sense so so looking at the uh, at the uh, fats and uh, and uh and uh, the other pillars that you discuss in your book, uh, I, I, I think, I think uh, those, are, those are definitely worth touching upon. I want to talk about those, those a bit as well. Sure. So the, we don't have a pillar called fat or anything like that. Uh, the closest we come is meat on the bone because we're telling you just to use the fat that the animal had. Um, don't throw it out. Don't let it go to waste. It's good stuff, particularly if the animal was pasture-raised. Um, but the other pillars are fresh food, which um, we touched on with milk, but also obviously fresh vegetables and a little bit of fresh fruit. Uh, you know, uh, the um, the benefits of, of the fruit in our culture here in America is way out 
out uh, exaggerated. Uh, most f- folks talk about fruits and vegetables in the same breath as if they are nutritionally equivalent. But, you know, fruits are, are good, but they have way more sugar per amount of nutrition, obviously, compared to a vegetable. So uh, we really want to eat more veggies than fruits. And what you get primarily the number one, like if I had to boil it down to just one benefit, it's the antioxidants. And then the next pillar is uh, fermented and sprouted foods. So that's where you get your prebiotics and probiotics from fermenting things like milk into yogurt, where you have the good bacteria still living in there. And then those bacteria actually produce complex oligosaccharides that serve as prebiotics as well. And sprouted food also serves uh, effectively as a excellent prebiotic because it's giving all kinds of fiber. So when I say sprouted, I mean, you just take like wheat, for example, and let it moisten it, let it sit for a day or two and the enzymes in the seed wake up. And that's kind of why it ends up being softer because all those enzymes started waking up and um, making everything more bioavailable, reducing the starch content, increasing the nutrient content. And then we already discussed meat on the bone. The last one, is organ meats, which is definitely not anyone's, not very many people's favorites. Although, you know, if you like liver, just, uh, I encourage people to have it. It's really good for you. Uh, especially if you can get it from grass fed pastured animals, you know, then you're not concentrating all the pesticides and things that, that, uh, get into the food chain these days, but any kind of organ is really going to be good for you. They're all good for different reasons. They have different nutrients. The same way when nutritionists talk about eating your vegetable rainbow, you know, you want to get your red and your orange and your purple vegetables because they all have different nutrient profiles and different um, vitamins. Same goes for different organs. Uh, They all have different nutrient profiles and they are just powerhouses packed with minerals and vitamins and other essential uh, nutrients. So a key takeaway here for uh, for our our listeners here would be to also consider your your, uh, organ uh, or, or the mix of organs that you include in your your if not if not a daily then at least your weekly diet. I'm 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 uh, a big fan of of a uh, of a uh, using especially uh, looking at looking at using uh, game in 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 a very very broad sense as as a food food yeah, game exactly. for game. <laughs> so so uh, but it, but it also does come down to knowing how to prepare it or knowing where to get it well prepared because. I feel that at least among my friends, uh, the uh, the uh, ones who who really love their organ meats and really love love their love their hearts and livers of 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 a of a say say beef or or moose or deer, venison. Uh, they 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 are the ones typically who are who are also the ones who know how to prepare it, or at least uh, go to the go to the good restaurants who know how to do it. So so uh, what would be your do do you have any do you have any uh, recommendations where to start for anyone wanted to include these nutritional powerhouses uh into their diet into their into their food? yeah for sure liverwurst um and and uh braunschweiger and um i do actually have some links on my website under uh, you know where to get good food where you can order it anywhere in the country they'll ship it to you frozen and um the one that i list um is I think it's U.S. Wellness Meats, and uh, they're both their liverwurst and their Braunschweiger are actually good. So that uh, it's not just like oh, this is good for liverwurst. Or, <laughs> <laughs> they're good. They're just plain good. Um, and another tip is like when you're hungry, hunger is the great teacher. Um, it will teach your brain to like these more nutritious foods too. So like if you go for a workout and you haven't eaten for hours and hours, that's a good time to introduce one of these things because you'll end up, you're basically training your body to, to like it when you do that. That's an excellent tip. Uh, I think, I think, uh, it's, it very much comes down to, to, uh, to, uh, reacquainting ourselves with these excellent ingredients, excellent whole food and real food ingredients that are, that are available, that are around us, but somehow have kind of slipped from, from public knowledge and somehow have kind of, kind of become, uh, something that may be viewed uh, even as as a as an uh, elitist type of type of food type of nutrition, what would you say to those those critics who are who are kind of looking at all of this and saying, well, yeah, it's easy if you if you have unlimited resources of time and money to put into your diet. Uh, what would you say to those people who are who are kind of looking at all of this and 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 feeling maybe a bit overwhelmed with with the uh, with the uh, instructions and and the uh, and the uh, concepts here? 
Yeah, the most important thing is the vegetable oils. And once you get those out of your brain, your brain will work better and everything will come easier. Um, I'd say that's the number one. Yeah. And then the other just like sort of a mindset thing is we've made a national pastime in this country of buying cheap food. We are we are the world leaders in producing cheap food. And it is uh, we have to kind of I think if we start examining that then we'll take away the label of like elitist and just get to uh, not participating, not signing up for a national experiment. That's just what we're doing when we're eating all this. We've signed up for a national experiment uh, by looking, by choosing food based on price. That was never, never, (laughs) never has happened in the history of the human race. And it's not working out very well for us. I just read an article uh, about uh, chicken. There was 1950 or 60. Chicken was very expensive because it was free range and took a long time to, to get to maturity. And they started a contest. They had a contest where uh, could you find a breed that got to slaughter weight faster and uh, they did. They found they found a chicken that got to slaughter weight in like half the time. And now we have chickens that are set, killed when they're seven weeks old. Like it used to be six months or something like that. But now they're seven weeks when they die. So they're converting this grain into something like a chicken muscle. Right. Uh, uh, faster and, than ever, but it's less nutritious and um, less nutritious than ever. And frankly, I just I just think the flavor's not there. So you know, you're getting better. I, I don't know. I find it kind of blah tasting. And I have to use a lot of sauces and stuff like that to get it to where it's not just like choke it down. But um, when you have these more these healthy birds, the meal itself is more enjoyable, and you don't need so much. Like that's another kind of a myth is that, um, you know, oh, it's going to cost more because food is going to cost more. Well, you'll be eating less because when you're a a fat burner, you don't, um, you don't need the same number of calories. Our average caloric intake in this country is about 3,600. And it, uh, the average caloric need is somewhere like less than a third less. So that's a third more food that we'd have if we just weren't overeating. And I have never heard anybody talk about that. Like when they're busy telling uh, us how elitist we are, that we want people to just simply eat (laughs) pastured chickens. And (laughs) what about just the fact that we throw away so much food? What about the fact that you'd save all this money if you're not eating more, if you're not so hungry that you're driven to eat more and more? Very much comes down to the mindset of of, uh, quality over quantity, doesn't it? Absolutely. So, so when you're when you're looking at <laughs> looking at these all these pillars, they're they're obviously something something that that is that is kind of very very attainable with with daily decisions. And you also talk about the uh, the relationship of of uh, LDL and HDL, and and uh, you mentioned the word myth there, uh, something that I that I wanted to touch upon because I think this is something that that our audience is very much into because at least uh, the uh, the uh, um, from, from kind of a, kind of a mentality of, of, a self-quantification and self-measurement and, and a biohacking mentality, uh, is, is looking at different ways, blood panels, genetic testing, as you know, as, as means of, of gaining, getting insights into our, into our own health. So what would be in addition to, to, uh, taking advantage of these principles that you lay out, uh, what would, what would be the kind of the key components of understanding your cholesterol levels and, and, and maybe, maybe looking into actionable ways of, of uh, improving those. So the way I evaluate cholesterol levels is, um, by if I, preferably I'll get a particle size, particle count and particle size, because, um, the small particles are unhealthy and they are not going to be able to do their job. And their job is to deliver nutrients. And in chapter seven, we have a whole section uh, where we talk about the lipid cycle and how these lipoproteins, HDL and LDL are lipoproteins, um, their job is to deliver fat. And that uh, if the particle size is small, that means that they are dysfunctional. They're not able to finally, you know, carry out the delivery and they just remain in circulation for way too long. And you're probably in the process of building up arteriosclerosis. Now, if I don't have that, 
the next best pro- proxy is the the ratio of HDL to triglycerides, which we, you know, we explain that in the book too. So you want your, your triglycerides to be no more than three times your HDL. And if you can get it to one-to-one, that's fantastic. Uh, so for example, in, in the, uh, uh, when, when you're working with professional athletes, is there some sort of uh, macronutrient balance that you're looking at to achieve these goals? I suppose you, you uh, employ lots of, lots of testing to achieve optimal results. Oh, no, we actually don't. (laughs) Sorry. This is is interesting. No, no, it's not necessary. Yeah. I mean, you can do it if you want to, but it's more about what you put in your body. And, um, you know, once a year they get the lipid panel and um, if there's anything offline, um, then the trainer will bring it to my attention. But they're so young and they're so active that they generally don't have those kinds of problems, unless there's something really extreme going on. And that's why they do get uh, brought to my attention if, if that's the case. But yeah, I look at that ratio, uh, but it's, it's just not necessary when you're eating a healthy diet. And for the most part, these guys are fed um, the fantastic food at the stadium. I'd say is during the season, they probably get at least half of everything is that fantastic food, probably more now because we're now we're feeding them kind of expanding the program so that, you know, after home games, they're getting dinner and it could be as much as 75%. And, um, you know, that, that really tells the the tale and there's no sense in doing tests if the guys don't care what the results are. (laughs) So, you know, they're not in this mindset that there's, you know, really anything that matters on these numbers on a piece of paper. A lot of them, you know, some of them are, but they're generally the older ones. And I think that's, that's also, also a good takeaway to anyone looking to Im- improve their own health and, and uh, maximize their own performance, only measure things that actually matter and only only uh, only analyze the stuff that you can actually <laughs> act upon to make it really a part of your part of your lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we pay a lot of attention to how they feel and we, we feel like that is the most important thing. And, you know, it also sends the message that we care about how you feel. You know, you're not really just yeah, a number. <laughs> uh, so where can people find more, uh, find out more about you and your research Obviously, your book, uh, Deep Nutrition, has uh, is, is available on Amazon, at least. Uh, are there everywhere? It's, everywhere. It's available it's, everywhere. It's available everywhere I now. I recommend our yep. listeners to pick it up. I think this is this is uh, amazing, uh, an amazing piece uh, of very actionable advice on improving your health and your performance. So where, where, what else what else can people do to to get in touch or find uh, more uh, find out more about you? My website is drkate.com and it's spelled D-R-C-A-T-E.com. And um, I have a lot of uh, resources there, particularly I have a whole section on heart disease and cholesterol so that it can go, um, it's complementary to the book. Like it won't, you kind of have to get both really to get the full picture. I mean, the book was 500 pages. We couldn't cram everything into, into that. So there's some, <laughs> there's still, uh, we, we couldn't keep going with that. So, um, we, uh, there's still some stuff that's on the website that's in the videos. That's really going to help you. Um, uh, and they're complimentary. Like I say, you won't quite get the videos if you have not read the chapters. It's a major, major rehaul in the thought process of what causes heart attack. And right now, um, you know, there's a lot of people talking about, uh, about inflammation and oxidation and LDL, but they're not getting at the root cause of that inflammation. They're not seeing it as the vegetable oils and they don't quite understand how that impairs the function. So they, um, they talk about it in ways that will potentially not enable them to interpret the numbers correctly. And so that's why I feel that this is so important. And there's, you know, a ton of information there for people who have issues that they're fighting with. And it gives, there's a lot of resources. Amazing. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Kate. It's, uh, it's uh, always nice to have these talks and hoping to uh, get the chance to hang out more in the events to come. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. It's been great talking to you. And uh, you might be interested. There is a study that just came out that says a Nordic diet reduces the risk. Yeah, of stroke. I actually actually uh, so, checked it uh, out uh, briefly, and and I I'm going to did. talk about it with with uh, Christian, our our MD PhD, on on one of our one of our episodes soon. So it's it's great that you brought it up because I, it's it's truly fascinating what's coming out from the Nordics. <laughs> Yeah. And interestingly, they say a healthy Nordic diet is characterized by high intakes of fish, blah, 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 and rapeseed oil. That's real. uh, That's really something that that I would like to drill into 
just understanding the role of rapeseed yeah. oil there because the fish is it definitely, yeah. That's yeah, related to canola. It's related to canola. That's why I'm bringing it up because, uh, you know, when you process it the way we do in this country, it's very unhealthy. So I uh, would like to hear that myself and figure out how do they process the rapeseed oil there because <laughs> they're probably dead wrong. I'm guessing they're just dead wrong I think about that. There, there might be might be something <laughs> in there that that isn't isn't uh, maybe maybe as as profoundly understood. But I will definitely dig into dig into that realm with our uh, next episodes because I think well one thing obviously that often gets noticed with the Nordic diet is is the uh, the uh, abundance of fish and and the beneficial oils there. Mm-hmm. But there's also also many of these factors that that you would think would be would be detrimental rather than beneficial. So so there's there's definitely definitely something to research yes. there. Thank you so much, Kate. It's it's uh, been yes. been a true pleasure. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you. And for our listeners, remember to check out all the show notes and all the uh, all the links on our webpage, amberknight.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast. Please check out the links, show notes, and other episodes at ambronite.com slash podcast. That's A-M-B-R-O-N-I-T-E dot com slash podcast. Thanks again, and catch you in the next episode.